makes you nervous when all the elders come up there, you know. You don't know about it. Begin thinking through the week now. Hmm, what did I say this week? Anyway. Well, open your Bibles to John chapter 21. This will be our last message in the Gospel of John. It's page 1087 in those pew Bibles, if that's what you're using this morning. It was on December 20th, 1899, that Henry and Magdalene brought their second son into the world. Martin's father ran a struggling grocery business. The family had to move about often during his childhood. During his formative years as the family struggled to try to make that grocery business work. Martin was a very bright child, a very good student, giving himself to studies and in his late teen years to the study of medicine. Just to uh, show you how bright he was, by the age of 23, Martin had achieved the prestigious position of chief clinical assistant to Sir Thomas Horder, who was the king's physician. So he had achieved access to the halls of power of the British Empire at the age of 23. While working there in medicine and seeing its devastating, the devastating effect of sin upon people, both poor and wealthy, Martin began considering an alternative calling for his life. At age 27, he gave up a very lucrative medical career to go and to pastor a small, struggling, Calvinistic Methodist mission church in Aberavon, South Wales. By the time he retired from London's famous Westminster Chapel in 1968, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, or the doctor, as he was affectionately called, had profoundly impacted thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people through his preaching and writing ministry. It's amazing what God did with that man. And this morning, as we're looking at this text together in John 21, verses 15 and following, which I'm going to read for you here in a moment, We are picking up on something we began last week. And here in this text, we noted that there are three ways in Jesus' restoration of Peter that can impact our own lives in order to make us better shepherds of sheep. Structurally, and I've told you this a number of times, so I guess maybe this will be my last time to tell you, but structurally, chapter 21 of John's Gospel is, um, is John's Great Commission chapter. It is the chapter in which he lays out the the uh, the ministry of the Great Commission that Jesus gave to His disciples before He ascended back to the right hand of the Father. John gives it in a, in a bit different fashion than the other Gospel writers do, but nonetheless, there is a Great Commission here. We noted for you that verses 1 through 14 is all about fishing, and it is indeed an enacted parable that they are to be fishers of men and that the only way they will effectively do so is in reliance upon the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Verses 15 and following, really through till close to the end of the chapter, is 
what we're calling shepherds of sheep. And so that's how I've entitled these two messages this morning, verses 15 really through 23, cover what's called shepherds of sheep. We are to go into all the world and make disciples, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and uh, teaching them to observe all that Christ has taught us. And lo, He is with us even to the end of the age, He says. And He he demonstrates that here to these disciples. They are to fish for men and they are to shepherd sheep. That is, they are to make disciples of those whom they catch successfully. Beginning in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast... And Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. Three ways that we can learn from Jesus' restoration of Peter here. Last week we looked at verses 15 through 17 and elaborated on that first way, Jesus' reinstatement of Peter. And what we noted as we worked through those verses is that three times... Jesus challenged Peter's love for him. And each time after challenging his love, he he gave him a commission. And the commission was to shepherd, to care for, to tend for the flock of God. And as we pulled that section apart and looked at it in, in a fair amount of detail, what we really came away from this noting is that it is the love of Christ that motivates the shepherding of his sheep. It is the love of Christ that causes us to want to make disciples of people. And that if, that if our desire to impact the world is based upon a love of people rather than a love of Christ, we noted last time that we will fall woefully short. People will disappoint you. People will let you down. You are definitely in for disappointment if it is people that is what motivates you. 
But if it is a love for Jesus Christ, a a passionate, consuming desire for Jesus Christ, and then you will go into the world and make disciples, regardless of the cost you have to personally pay. And that leads us really here to the second way that we can we can learn, we can be impacted by this restoration of Peter, and that is in verses 18 and 19. And what I've what I've called this is Jesus' reorientation of Peter. First it was Peter's reinstatement by Jesus. Now it is his reorientation. And this is huge. This is absolutely huge. Take a look again here, verses 18 and 19. Using that very common expression that Jesus was famous for throughout many of the Gospels there, verse 18, truly, truly, amen, amen, pay attention, listen up here, this is important, what I'm telling you. What he says to him is here is that I am going to reorient your life. Peter, your life is not going to be what it once was. Indeed, your very reinstatement, your restoration is going to necessitate your reorientation. Your reorientation. And what he does here, again, look at verse 18, is he, he compares Peter's former manner of life when he was a younger man with what his life is going to be like when it ends. And he singles out two contrasts to do that, verse 18. First, he says, you used to gird yourself. That is, that you used to clothe yourself, literally fasten your own belt. You used to do up your own trousers, Peter. But that's going to change. Your, your clothing, your, your ability to select your own clothing and to clothe yourself as you wanted to illustrates your former manner of independent life. That's going to change. Beyond that, you used to be able to go wherever you wanted to. Verse 18, right? You can walk wherever you wished. That is that you, you had a, a freedom of movement. You could clothe yourself however you liked. You could go wherever you wanted to go. That's all going to change. Your life is going to be completely reoriented. Not anymore, Peter. No longer can you wear what you want. No longer can you go where you want to go. Someone else is now master over you. And notice, again, verse 18, that he ties it into when you grow old. Do you see that? He says, when you grow old... You will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Beloved, normally old age is is that time in life of peace and tranquility. It is for the old that is normally reserved a, 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 a period of rest. It is when we grow old that we withdraw from, typically, historically, we withdraw from having to earn a living, right? We're not working as hard as we once had to work. It is when one grows old that he enters into retirement. It is when one grows old that he is discharged from his military service. It is when one grows old that there is a peaceful period in life. Yet Jesus inverts that order here for Peter, verse 18. He completely turns it around. What he says is, is Peter, when you were young, you had a life of leisure. But now, Peter, as you grow old, your life is going to come, become completely opposite that. All the freedom, all the ease, all the rest and relaxation that would normally be equated with old age is going to be gone from you. Your most 
restful days, your freest days were your young days. In your, in your older years, Peter, you are going to be taken to a place where you don't want to go. And the thing that, doesn't, that you don't want to happen is going to happen to you. What he's telling Peter is, is that you are going to be governed by the will of another. And that will is going to take you all the way to a martyr's death. All the way to a martyr's death. The very expression here, stretch out your hands, verse 18. Do you see that? That is an old and ancient expression and it refers to crucifixion. It is a, it is a shorthand way of referring to crucifixion. And what he's saying to him, Peter, is that when you grow old, you will suffer crucifixion. Someone else will bind you where you do not want to be bound, taking you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, John adds his editorial comment on this, right? Verse 19, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. There is no guesstimate about this, what Jesus was talking about. He was telling Peter, you're going to die. And he was telling him exactly how he was going to die, what kind of death he was going to die. John's writing this, by the way, 20 years after Peter's death, at least 20 years. And he's looking back upon it now himself and reflecting upon all that not only went on this day, but in the subsequent years to to follow. The church father, Tertullian, reports that Peter was crucified under Nero in A.D. 64. That he met his martyr's death under the hands of the maniac Nero in A.D. 64. The church historian Eusebius writes that Peter was crucified upside down at his own request because he thought himself unqualified to suffer in the identical fashion as his Lord. And so he did die the martyr's death. He, di- he died the death of crucifixion. The prophecy spoken of here came true. But notice beyond that in verse 19, John's editorial comment, and this is, this is important. He's looking back now, as I said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Do you see that? It is not just a prophecy of his death. It is a prophecy of his glorification of God. The death of Peter was designed, it was the means by which God designed to bring glory to himself. This was not a happenstance. This was not Peter getting on the wrong side of the Roman authorities at the wrong time. You know, wrong place, wrong time, swept up in a big net. This was God's design for this man's life. Thirty years before he died... Jesus prophesied of him, you will die a martyr's death. How foreign that is to our typical way of thinking. hmm? The concept of a martyr's death. When we hear of someone being martyred for Jesus Christ, what's our first reaction? Is it not to think it a tragedy? Is it not to think of all the sorrow involved in it? Is it not to think that, wow, couldn't that have been avoided? Wasn't there something that could have been done? Maybe they should have left that country sooner and it wouldn't have happened to them. Maybe they shouldn't have gone the place where they were going and it wouldn't have happened to them. We would see the martyrdom of someone typically as a tragedy. Yet the Scriptures don't see it that way at all. 
in the great and sovereign plan of God. The violent death of His people is one of the means by which He glorifies Himself. Let that thought sink into your mind for a moment. It is by the violent death of His people that God appoints His own glory. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. And the reason it brings God glory, by the way, is because it demonstrates the changed life of a sinner. Of a person who was completely sold out to their own comfort, for their own happiness, to their own glory, who would then voluntarily surrender themselves peacefully to lose their life for that one who had redeemed them eternally. It brings God glory because it shows the change that God can make in a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. Beloved, lest you think that this is an isolated idea, turn with me. Let's just do it that way. We've got time, I think. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 6. I was just going to read it to you. I want to turn you there. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. Actually, we'll pick it up in verse 9. This is during the tribulation period. The breaking of the seven seals that unleashes those seven years of wrath and fury upon the earth. Verse 9, And when he had broken the fifth seal... I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Those are martyrs, beloved. Those are people who died rather than give up the word of God, rather than renounce their testimony of their allegiance to Christ. Verse 10, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long before you will make it right? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. Beloved, there is a sovereignly defined number of martyrs. They should rest patiently until those will join them who had also been appointed to seal their testimony with their own blood. It is part of the great and sovereign plan of God to glorify Himself In many ways, but one of which is the martyrdom of his own people. Back to John 21, verse 18. Truly, truly, listen here, Peter. Pay attention. Don't miss this. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. 
Jesus prophesies Peter's martyrdom. But then notice in verse 19, when he had spoken this, Jesus said to him, follow me. There is a prophecy of his martyrdom and it is immediately followed by a clear command to Peter to follow Christ. That is to follow him in service and suffering. That is for Peter to embark upon a life of consistent discipleship with Jesus Christ that will ultimately end in his death. Peter, get on the train. Follow me all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. And beloved, Peter's life was transformed that day. He lived from that day forward under the knowledge of a death sentence. Take me or I'll take go with me to Second Peter chapter one. Peter's last recorded words to the church. Verse 12, he says, Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter spent the rest of his life, the next 30 years, with a death sentence. He knew he would die for Christ. And yet he pressed on in service for Him. He gave himself wholeheartedly, unreservedly for the next 30 years in following Christ in service and suffering. Many of us have had a life of ease. Many of us live even now a life of ease. Even our faith commitment to Jesus Christ has cost us little. There has been little fallout from your faith in Christ. We are a long way from the words of the writer to the Hebrews, where he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. It's true of all of us. Our commitment to Christ so far has not cost us a whole lot. But all that could change. All that could change. The reorientation of Peter's life, beloved, commends a reorientation of yours and mine. Peter had a specific prophecy that he was going to die a martyr's death. And as we will let this unfold a little further, John had a prophecy of his life as well. We don't have such direct statements from Christ to us. He has not spoken to you. He has not spoken to me and told me what the future has in store. I don't know. I don't know whether I will die for him or not. But one thing I do know is that my life has been radically reoriented by my commitment to follow him. I trust so has yours. The steadfast pursuit of the risen Christ reorients your life. Your priorities change. That which you value changes. That how you measure success changes. It all changes. Christ's command here in verse 19, 
to follow me is a command to announce the allurements of the former life. It is a command to put away the old, to pursue the new. It's a command to go where he leads you regardless of the cost. What could it cost us as Christ is reorienting our lives? Hmm? What kind of price might he call you to pay? Now, let me suggest a few to you. How would it sit with you if he were to send your children to the mission field? And not to um, England. How about if he were to send them to the heart of the 1040 window? Where the vast population of unbelievers still reside. And where Christianity is not only not welcome, but is illegal. And in many cases brings a death sentence. How would you feel, moms and dads, when your daughter or son comes home from college and says, I believe God is calling me as a missionary to go to Saudi Arabia. Or they behead you. How would you feel if God were to call you? Challenge you to give up your job, your house, your neighborhood, your friends, your family, and follow Him. How about if we were to be involved in a church plant three or four communities away from here? We were to ask you, would you be willing to go and leave the fellowship here to start out with this new small core group? where all the amenities that we enjoy would no longer be available to you. But it would be hard work, door to door, day after day, week after week, seeking to share the gospel and to begin to build a church. What about if following Christ meant giving up your vacation so you could go on a short-term mission trip? That vacation that you've saved up for all year long. You know, you're going to go to the mountains or maybe the beach. Got that beach home, you can see it now, right? In your mind's eye. I've worked hard this year. Put my feet up. Want to read a book? How about if you're challenged to take all that you've accumulated for that well-deserved rest and plow it into a trip to a third world country? Or you can suffer for Christ. How about if he asked you to sell your motorhome? I know I'm meddling now, right? How about if he asked you to sell your motorhome and give up your Saturday nights to work in a soup kitchen, feeding the poor? There are sacrifices to be made. That's the point. There are sacrifices. The reorientation of our life is just that. It is a change of who we are, where we're going. We can't continue on business as usual and then claim to be following Christ. This command to follow me, by the way, for some of you here this morning, may be to follow me for the very first time. 
maybe up until this time, you the only one you have followed is your own desires. Whatever you feel like doing at the time, that's what you're going to do. Last thing in the world you've thought about is somebody else reorienting your life. Let me assure you, based on the Word of God, that if that is your lifestyle this morning, if you are following your own desires, going where you want to go, the path will lead you directly to hell. Your soul be damned. If you want nothing to do with God, that's what you will receive. An eternity separated from His goodness and blessing. Suffering and torments eternal damnation. Jesus Himself said back in Matthew chapter 16, speaking of to those that He was calling to follow Him, He said, If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? How much is your soul worth this morning? Christ will not negotiate with anyone. He won't strike a bargain. It won't be a 50-50 deal. I get to retain you know, half say in what goes on and you get half say. He wants it all. He wants it all. Peter's life is reoriented here in a profound, significant way. Beyond that, beloved, Jesus rebukes Peter in verses 20 and 23. And you know what? I am so beholding to Peter in many, many ways. Peter asks all the questions that I want to ask, but never had opportunity, right? Peter's the guy who, um, you just picture, you know, Christ is walking along and he's speaking to his disciples as he walks and he, he stops quickly and Peter steps on the back of his sandal because he's, he's that close to him all the time, but he, he always seems to have trouble working out the details. That's what happens again here. Verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The picture here, by the way, is that, that when Jesus spoke to Peter and said, follow me, that evidently he must have got up and started to move away from that charcoal fire. Got up, perhaps just began to walk a few paces away. And he said to Peter, follow me. It was not just, come on, you know, walk behind me. It was follow me in discipleship and suffering. That's clear from the context here. But there appears also there was movement going on in the scene. And so as they move away from the others, Peter, verse 20, right? He turns around, he looks back over his shoulder. It's lucky he didn't get turned into a pillar of salt, huh? He looks back over his shoulder and he, he sees John. He sees John. It's fascinating the way John describes himself in this gospel, by the way. He never refers to himself by name. He always, or his, one of his favorites is that the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And by the way, that's not a statement of arrogant pride. You know, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. It was, I'm the disciple, I can't believe that he loved me. I'm the disciple that he loved. 
Peter turning around, verse 20, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who would also lean back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? I think what he's communicating here for us is a, it's a definite reference back to the just a couple of weeks before to the to the, uh, to the Passover night, right? When they're taking the, the meal together in the upper room. And you remember that they were around the table and John was was reclining next to Jesus. And John, had, or excuse me, yeah, Jesus had just said that one of you is going to betray me. And they're all going, who is it? Is it me? Is it me? And Peter motions to John because he's laying next to Jesus. And he said, ask him who it is. I mean, these two were friends. These two were friends. They were business partners before that. They were friends. They had, their lives had become intertwined in the following of Christ. They are part of that inner three, right? Peter, James, and John. So it's, it's not that, that Peter is, is in any way begrudging John. He, he's concerned about John. I think that's what's going on. There's an intimacy here between these two men. Peter has just been told he's going to die. And he's concerned about his friend John. So as they're walking away, he looks back, he sees John. John's following too. And Peter says, Lord, what about this man? Verse 21. I mean, the cost of discipleship is high, Lord. You've just told me I'm going to die. And so what about my friend John? What's going to happen to him? What about this man? It's admirable, I think, Peter's concern. But at the same time, it indicates that the the depths of Jesus' command to him in verse 19 has not fully sunk in. He's not fully processed exactly what it is that he's being commanded of verse 22 right jesus said if i want him to remain until i come what is that to you you follow me he just reiterates to him john follow me the bible commentator william hendrickson writes quote curiosity must make way for obedience peter must not be so interested in god's secret counsel regarding John that he fails to pay attention to God's revealed will. Ooh, that was interesting. Don't worry so much, Peter, about what's going to happen to somebody else. You, right? Verse 22, follow me. Present active imperative, by the way. It's, a, it's not just a one time. It's an ongoing you follow me. And by the way, the way this is structured here in verse 22, this is a very sharp Statement. It's even, as I've said, it's a rebuke. Jesus rebukes Peter at this point. And to put it in the, uh, in the colloquial, it's, it's none of your business, Peter. It's none of your business. Peter has been told what the future holds for him. His responsibility is to obey, regardless of what happens to those around him. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 22, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? If I want him to live, minnow is the verb, it means to remain or or to live. And, And so what Jesus is saying is, if I want him to live until I come again, what difference does that make to you? That's a pretty sharp rebuke. huh? It's also a very clear statement of God's sovereignty. A very clear statement of God's sovereignty. 
What happens to John, Peter, is my decision and no one else's but mine. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. God has called Peter to a strategic pastoral ministry, verses 15 through 17, and a martyr's death at the end of it, verses 18 and 19. He has called John to a long life and to a really a strategic theological writing ministry. All right, verse 24. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things. Christ's purposes for John were to live a long life and to write a gospel. Christ's purposes for Peter were to die a martyr's death. None of your business, Peter, what my plans are for John. Now, verse 23, John inserts this here for his, his readers. He's, he's going to clear up some theological smoke that's been drifting around for a long time, apparently. This saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. Right. But only that if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? He didn't tell John you're going to live until the second coming. He just said to Peter, what I do with John, if I want him to live, then that's none of your business. God works differently through different people. He has different ministries for different people. And the worst thing we can do is compare one to another. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 8. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. It's not a big deal who does what. That's what Paul's saying. We are not to get all wrapped up in who's got what ministry and which one's more important than another one. The worst thing we can do is compare one to another. Or if we compare ministries, we will either envy someone or we will look down on someone. We are not to compare, we are to follow. We're not to compare, we are to follow. How does this apply to us? Well, one way I can think of that applies to us is that we're not to compare this church with any other. We are not to compare the work of God at Foothill Bible Church with other churches. For if we do, we will either envy them or we will look down on them. The man who occupied this pulpit before me used to say all the time, blowing someone else's candle out doesn't make yours burn any brighter. We are not to be involved in the comparison of ministries. It's really fascinating, by the way, you go to a pastor's luncheon or a conference or whatever, and they start talking to each other, you know, and inevitably, right, Vince? If it's not the first question, it's it's within the top three. Maybe first is what's your name, right? Second is what church? I guess it's probably third question, right? What is it? How big is it? How big is it? 
How many souls do you want to give account for? We're not to compare churches, beloved. Not size, not ministries. Secondly, application from this is there are no false dichotomies between sacred and secular. Let me develop this for you here in just for a minute. There are no false dichotomies between sacred and secular. There is a, there is a notion that goes around that those who are involved in full-time ministry somehow walk closer to God. That somehow God is uh, more pleased with their life. You know, they're, they're just like a half step above everybody. Now, people don't express it that way. That would be blasphemous. But that's how they act and that's how they treat it. Oh, would I be so happy if my children became missionaries or became pastors or, or, you know, became real people for God. Beloved, we're called to minister for God wherever He puts us. If He places His his call upon your life to serve Him vocationally full-time, then go for it. To do anything else would be disobedience. But if He has placed His hand upon you to call you to something else, you do that. You live for Christ wherever He has put you. Wherever He has put you, doing whatever He has called you to do. An electrician is equally a minister for Christ as a Bible teacher. We are to be the best electricians for Christ that we can possibly be. And when opportunity comes to speak about Christ to those in the workplace and your, and your co-workers and so forth, you are to do so with boldness. For you will reach people that it wouldn't be possible for someone else to reach. We must abuse ourselves of these false dichotomies between the sacred and the secular. But third, we must not use this idea that it's none of our business what someone else, God is doing through someone else to be an excuse for laziness. That's the flip side. We're not to to create the false dichotomies, but nor are we to retreat into this to somehow justify our laziness or our unwillingness to serve Christ. If He has called you to serve Him as an electrician, then serve Him. He's called you to serve him as a pastor. Serve him as a pastor. There's no room for laziness. There's no room for retreating into that flimsy excuse, well, God just hasn't called me. Peter, your life has been completely reoriented. Completely reoriented. Because of your love for Jesus Christ, you have been called to shepherd the people of God. And that task will reorient you. And in completing that task, Peter, you're going to suffer greatly and you're going to even die. But that's God's business and no one else's. Are you ready to pay the price? Are you ready to pay the price? And then John closes this gospel in verses 24 and 25, right? With his last words. Verse 24 is a, is a testimony to the truthfulness of what he has written. This is the disciple who bears witness to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his witness is true. That's the, the editorial we. John uses the same kind of expression over in 1 John a number of 
places in the first chapter. The point that John is making here is that, is that I was with him. I am one of the witnesses, one of the, one of the original disciples. Everything I'm telling you, I'm telling you the truth. I've written these things down that you might join with me. That you might enter into the apostolic truth. John was the repository of truth about Christ. He wrote this gospel. John was the last living apostle, the last living and writing apostle. He composed this somewhere around 85, maybe 90 A.D. All the others had long since passed from the scene. Paul had been gone a long time. Peter had been gone a long time. All the rest of them had met their martyr's death, yet God preserved this old man that he might write these things down. Verse 25, there are many other things which Jesus did, John says, which if they were written in detail, I suppose even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. John utilizes hyperbole here. He says there is much more about Jesus Christ than we know. Much more. If I were to write down everything that he did, the world itself couldn't even hold all the books. It's a fitting way to bring our study of this gospel to a close, beloved. We have been at this for three and a half years. This is the 121st sermon from the gospel of John. We've been after it for a long time. It's the only thing I know. I'm in living in complete panic about next Sunday. <laughs> I'm not kidding about that. For three and a half years, I've had the comfort of knowing that what am I going to do next week? I know what it is. 121 sermons we've preached on this gospel. We've come to a limited understanding of it. We have not exhausted it. We have not plumbed the richness of its depths. If we were to go through it again, there would be much more that we could say. It should drive us to humility before Christ. He is the risen one, God in human flesh. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is but a glimpse of him. In our feeble attempts over the last three and a half years, have been helpful, I trust, but there's so much more that could be said. Let the knowledge that we have gleaned be used of God to humble our hearts and to draw us to a greater love and appreciation of that one who said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. We'll be singing here in just a moment in our service as we traditionally do. But if there is something that has been said here this morning that has caused you to reflect to a point where you want to talk to somebody about it. Maybe there are questions you have that if you were to die tonight, if you were to die and stand in the presence of God and you were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? And if you have no answer, then what I want you to do is, is as we finish that closing song, as you come to that lighted cross over there and there'll be some folks who will meet you, 
They'll answer your questions. They'll open the Word of God with you. And they'll show you how that you today can begin to have life everlasting. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is so much that we do not know. So much about which we are curious and so much about which we don't even know that we do not know. But what we do know, our Father, causes us to fall on our faces in worship of Him. May you glorify and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst today. May you drive home the message of this text. That our lives would be living testimonies for him. May you open the eyes of the blind in our midst who do not yet see Jesus Christ. And may you grant them even this day life everlasting. We will give you the glory that you deserve in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen.